0: So uh, Hayden and I are back for another episode of Unscripted Exchanges. Uh, if you can hear in the background, we actually have an unbelievable guest on today. We're really excited. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Joe Marinic. Joe is the Executive Chairman. Uh, and Joe, please feel free to chime in and tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm misspeaking. But the Executive Ch- Chairman of Prodigo Solutions, the CEO of Sonoma Holdings, and was recently uh, inducted into the Greater Cincinnati Hall of Fame laureate for his business acumen and just overall impact he's had on the community and, and businesses around the Cincinnati area and, and and around the world. So super excited to have you on here today, Joe. Well, thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. So, Joe, we uh, we've got a list of. Pretty, I think, pretty good questions to kind of talk, start some topics. Um, watch that video of your induction into the the Cincinnati Hall of Fame, which is just unbelievable. That's an unbelievable uh, accolade to add to your, I'm sure, uh, repertoire of of awards and stuff. And kind of one of the things I wanted to to, to first ask you because that that was kind of a hot topic for us is what did that what did winning that award mean to you?
1: Uh, initially, uh, I didn't think much of it uh, when they, uh, they called me up to let me know that I was uh, being awarded that honor. Um, but the more of that I looked at the former inductees uh, that have been included into that uh, Hall of Fame of uh, Laureate program and the uh, awards dinner, Um, actually I didn't have a speech for it I'm I'm giving you a long answer here there were 500 people there Um, and I looked around the crowd I didn't have a speech and it was uh, all about achievement and uh, it struck me uh, in looking at the uh, participants there 500 people and the usual faces when I gave when I got up, it, it, it meant quite a bit to me because when I went up to give my speech, it was probably the briefest speech in the history of, uh, <laughs> of that event. They, they actually told me it was 92 seconds long.
2: Okay. Short uh, and sweet.
1: Yeah. And uh, uh, what it meant to me, and I'm getting to that point, is uh, when I got up, I said, uh, you know, I wanted to thank the Junior Achievement so forth and so on, but um, we live in the greatest country in the world, and because of that country, we have had the opportunity and privilege to achieve, regardless of where we come from Mm -hmm. and who we are. And once we have that Uh, opportunity and and privilege to achieve, then we have the privilege and opportunity to share that achievement, whether it's emotional, physical, or um, financial, with other people. And as I look around the room, uh, I would like you all to stand up Take a look at each person at the table and take a look at the tables around you, because we happen to be in one of the most giving cities in America and the most giving country. And every one of you has achieved to be giving back. So I'd like you to join me in, in uh, putting our hands together and applauding each and every one of you for your achievements and what you've done in giving back. And that was it.
3: Okay. So when you, when you
1: take the sum total of that, it was uh, a privilege to be involved uh, with people and to be honored, I guess, uh, or recognized for your achievements. But in reality, everybody there had achieved and everybody there continues to give back. So, uh, that
3: was that's
0: what it meant to me. That was the takeaway. Well, so and, uh, God, good. Well, I was going to say, like one of the things you know that stuck out to me, Joe, from from knowing you, you know, back when I was starting my my first technology company, Parity Water, you know, Parity was you know the pool monitor, then the aquaculture, and one of the things that's that stuck out to me, and even the fact that you're doing this podcast with us was your willingness to provide your time to people. And time is a big asset. I think um, we all, we, you know, the older you get, the more you recognize how important your time is and how valuable it is. And, you know, just kind of hearing you talk about this achievement and you're like, eh, it was whatever at first to me. And then you kind of recognize that, it was it was cool that we could be here and celebrate together what we've achieved. You know, it's a it's a very much not a this is all about me and this is all about Joe, but this is all about our city and what we're doing for people. And I can tell you like as a local Cincinnati and and a uh, a, a patriot, you know, a lover of the greatest state and you know, greatest country in the world, that's awesome to hear. And it sounds like, you know, you've been there, done that, but you're not saying, "Hey, look at me, look at me," but Hey, look at what we've done as a country, and what we've done in this individual, in, you know, in, in this small group that was at this event. So that's really neat to hear.
1: Yeah, it's never about an individual; it's always about the people and uh, your ability to have the opportunity to interact with people to make a difference. Um, I happen to uh, here's a quick anecdotal story for you. I <clears throat> I happen to. Uh, And I'm not going to mention names, but you'll probably figure it out. Uh, I happened to meet some folks, um, two of the smarter guys in the financial world on the planet at Pebble Beach playing golf. And they had taken an interest in one of my companies. And they became, to me, to use their terms, unofficial financial advisors to me. And they had helped me out significantly in about a five, six year period, and uh, had mentored me. And and, uh, I sold that company uh, for right at a quarter of a billion dollars. Wow! And uh, they called me when after it was announced in the Wall Street Journal, I got off a plane in Phoenix and my phone rang. And it was the one gentleman, he said, I'm going to put George on the phone here. And uh, they said, uh, we want to congratulate you on what you've accomplished. And I said, well, thank you very much. Uh, And they said, we'd like to have dinner with you the next time you're out here in California. And I said, I'd be happy to. Uh, I said, uh, they said, well, now you've achieved achieved a certain position of wealth and would like to sit down and talk to you about it. And me being a fool, I said, uh, oh, you want me to invest in your fund? And they go, absolutely not. I said, okay, uh, let's have dinner. And I sat at the dinner table and I thanked them profusely for what they had done for me, helped me with. And I said, uh, how can I pay you back? Now, these are two billionaires.
0: Okay, yeah, they're they're super up there, right.
1: <laughs> right, okay. Actually, multi-billionaires. And uh, they looked at me and said, well, you're going to have a lot of institutions coming to you that want to leverage your financial gains. You're going to have a lot of people approach you. And here's the two things you can do for us. Don't change who you are and how you got there. I said, Well, that's pretty simple. <laughs>
0: right, right. Love that.
1: I said, Well, it's not as simple as you think. Mm-hmm. And I said, Okay. And they said, The second thing is, hey, Aspect, we want you to be open and able to listen to people who come to you with their ideas, their concepts, and listen to them and give them advice and direction that's unvarnished help them where they need help and share your time your knowledge with other people that could be emotional intellectual or financial but take the time to listen because remember you were one of those people a while back and if you'll remember who we are and what we shared with you years ago, we were those people way back when. So um, it was a very eye opening. And uh, to your point, uh, time is the most precious commodity we have in life. The reason for that is we don't know how much time we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ability to share that time and listen and uh, be able to be supportive, give direction and is, I think, uh, very valuable in uh, building out your own character, your own integrity to help other people. And it's never about you as an individual. Um, I see some of those people in business, they don't last long. Um, It's more about, it's always a team environment, always. There's only two ingredients in a company as you heard me saying that interview people and money and we could put $20, 50000000 million on the table. It doesn't matter. It's not going to do anything. It's just money,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but we come up with a vision, a concept, an idea, put together a strategy, hire people. And then we work to implement that strategy and we have an opportunity to lose that money or make it grow. So the most important asset any organization has are its people. And it's important that you take the time to meet people, listen to them, and surround yourself with very good people.
2: I, I love that uh, that message and that story. I appreciate you sharing that, Joe. It sounds like, or at least one of the, the many takeaways, because you shared quite a few there. Is to kind of pay it forward and kind of help the the next generation as well was one uh, feedback uh, that you had received there, which is which is awesome because you have to remember where you came from. We all start somewhere, and it's always nice to to be humble and kind of listen to you know some up and coming ideas. So uh, I know we we talked offline, but we're super appreciative and, and thankful that you're giving uh, your time to us here today. Uh, I've got a few questions, real quick. One, which should be a pretty simple one. Um, I know you're you're a golfer. I just want to know what your best round of golf is. My best round ever. Yeah. Uh,
1: well
2: <laughs> and it, it well, can well, have I'll an asterisk play. next to it. <laughs>
1: uh, from a scoring point of view, um, I shot a 68 at Pebble Beach. Wow. Uh, From from a, that's four back operations ago. Um, From a uh, enjoyment point of view, that would be tough to ascertain because uh, (laughs) we have a golf tournament. I have a, a golf tournament at Pebble Beach. It'll be 25 years this January. It's the only private golf tournament at Pebble Beach. And, uh, We have a motto there. I have 80 of my friends from around the world come. We spend a week there. We play three tournament rounds of Pebble and one at Spyglass. And our motto is, it's not the grass you walk. Obviously, that's some of the finest golf grass in the world. But it's not the grass you walk. It's who you walk the grass with. (laughs) And, again, it comes back to the same subject we talked about for the last 15 minutes, and it's people. So... I can't. I can put a finger on my best score. I can, but I can't put a hand on my most favorable run because uh, the people are uh, dynamic and it's always changing every time you go out there. And it's a great four hours to spend with uh, people. You could have a great time at Hackers Hollow if you have the right three other people with you. Totally. So uh, that's my answer to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I knew you would kick my ass, but I didn't know how badly you would kick my ass if we <laughs> went out. I, I think many, many years ago, you probably don't know this, but I think I might have caddied for you like 15-plus years ago at a local country club. I don't know. it's It's been a minute. Um, Coldstream? Yeah, I wasn't going to name drop the, the club, but yeah.
3: yeah,
2: <laughs> I used to be a caddy back right. in the day. I'm a terrible golfer, though. <laughs> I'd be lucky to break right. uh, 85 on a good day. <laughs> That's not too bad. No, you got to start somewhere, right? I just got to get out there more consistently. But, anyhow, more of a business related question. Um, Cole and I have started companies. Um, you know, success is relative, or yeah, we are always trying to learn. We want to start future companies together. But the question that I'm trying to ask here is. And it's not necessarily a binary question, but it's going to come off as a binary yes or no. Do you think it's easier to start a company in today's environment versus you know 10, 20, 30 years ago?
1: I don't think it's uh, I don't think the dynamics have changed at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know statistically that um, I guess in the last the last source of truth I looked at was, uh, 1919, um, uh, uh I, I, believe it was Deloitte that, uh, 92% of the companies that start in this country go out of business within three years.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, there's a real reason for that. Um, the, the basic principles of building a business are, uh, you know, the, They they don't change. Mm -hmm. You have a product or a technology you believe it can make a difference. And then if you're smart, you take a look at what you believe the impact of that product or technology will be, and then you put it off on the side and then you say, okay, uh, what's the market opportunity for that product or technology? What's the competitive landscape today? What type of advantage will I be bringing to the market relative to what exists today? Mm -hmm. Um, Is my objective to, at the end of the day, and this is where most people fall short, is my objective to sell this company? Is my objective to build this company out and continue to make money and run it? Uh, What are my end goal objectives and starting this company. Where do I want to be? And then you work backwards. And uh, once you do that, then you figure out, remember, two ingredients, people, and money. The first ingredient you have to have is you already have the idea and concept with a couple of people, you and your partner.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And then you have to get the money. And most people undercapitalize uh most people starting a company try to put a high valuation on their company so they don't have to give away as much stock totally ridiculous should be done the opposite way uh, you should try to value your company as low as you can um, and if you have the proper amount of access to money uh the right kind of business plan You don't have to go out for additional second and third rounds of financing where you're devaluating your company because you haven't met your goals. Mm, Okay. Uh, So the pre-planning is extremely important Mm -hmm. and most people fall in love with the product or the technology and have a rush to market. And that is, that's a problem and that's been a problem forever. I mean, you can look back on businesses that have started and failed and why, and then you can take a look at entrepreneurs that started, failed, took a second and third opportunity, and generally by the third time they do it, they start to get it right because if they're smart, they learn from their mistakes. So I don't think there's any difference based on the economic conditions uh, of when to start a company. again it has to do with the viability of your product or service and the ability to look at the end game and work backwards to figure out uh, your market your market opportunity who will buy your company who the strategic buyers would be and then how much money you'll need and then once you understand how much money you'll need then you have to figure out where you're going to go get that money Mm -hmm. and that's a really important and critical uh, area and uh, most places that are early stage have to get the money from high net worth individuals uh, because uh, angel angel groups uh, even VCs have a small limited uh, or a floor of what they're willing to invest and uh, so you're dealing with high net worth individuals and if you're older And you tell them, here's my plan, and my plan is to build it and sell it, and here's who I plan to sell it to as a strategic, Uh, they understand that. Or if you're younger, like you fellas, um, you have to be able to show them, if they put in a dollar, how they're going to get their dollar back and what their upside potential is. And I believe you
3: guys are in your maybe late 20s, early to mid 30s. Late 20s, yeah. Okay,
1: if I'm, if I'm looking at a fellow who's looking for an investment, and he's in his late 20s, early 30s, uh, I don't expect he's gonna build that company to sell it. I expect he's gonna be committed, and he's gonna build that company to make it profitable and continue to build it, uh, because he has a lot of runway chronologically. Right. And if that's the case, then he has to be able to show the investor at a certain point in time in the future and if you're following your business plan how you're going to do evaluation and pay dividends back out uh, to these investors and or potentially buy them out and uh, because most investors uh, gentlemen uh, that have high net worth are mostly in their lower expense life cycle curves which means they're generally in their mid 50s and older um, and most are really in their sixties where they have disposable, uh, liquid, uh, uh, equity to write a check for, you know, half million, million dollars. Um, and they know that their time on the planet is not going to be, it's a diminishing number right. from the time you're, so they want to understand. How they're going to get their dollar back and what's the upside going to be. And if it's a guy that has a history of buying, building, and selling companies like I do, they know that here's the horizon and here's who he's probably going to sell it to. And here's what the multiples look like. So that's what they make their conscious decision on. When they look at guys like you, they think, well, they're probably not going to sell the company. They'll probably want to build it. And continue to build it. So, how am I going to get my money out? And that's where you have to figure out in your uh, private placement memorandum how you're going to unlock their value for them, other than selling the company.
0: Okay. So, I got, a, I got, I got, I got a question specific to that, Joe, as you're talking about it, because that intrigues me, and I think we've, you've kind of shared some of this with me before, um, you know, over our our conversations. And one of the questions I'd have for you is like, as as an you know, you've as you just stated, you've invested and started uh, multiple companies and exited them. As an inv- you know, put yourself in the investor's shoes, which you already are. What do you uh, do? You look for like, are you more interested? Or, or does it scare you more when you look at younger entrepreneurs that that you're looking at that necessary that don't necessarily want to exit? Is that a turnoff for you? Is or is it more of like a just show me how?
1: It's just show me how. Okay. I think uh, when you look at uh, when you look at more seasoned, take a look at me. I mean, I don't, what am I now? Seventy four. Okay. I flunked retirement three times, <laughs> and. Uh, you know i'm back at the game buying more companies building them up and selling them. i'm getting ready to sell two of the companies here in the next six to nine months that we have uh, that i'm running and uh my investors know that and their question with a a, a more seasoned or i'll turn to be an older guy is how much energy how much energy does he have how much gas does he have in the tank really drive this and what are his motivations to do it if he's already made a lot of money why is he doing it and uh, you have to be able to answer those questions in my case I think business is the greatest game ever invented on the planet and why is that it's like it's like no other game in in any other game say uh, physical sports you blow out a knee you hurt your shoulder you're done you, your body can only last so long in business, your mind can get better with every deal you do and you can learn more, you can be, uh, you can be more, uh, focused, you can have a greater holistic view based on your uh, past experiences and you can play that game of business until they throw you in the dirt <laughs> and, uh, and. Uh, it's uh, it's something that is motivating to me personally and I personally really enjoy and wouldn't know what else I'd do I can only play golf so many days a week Right, I shoot so much I can only go on a boat and you have to keep your mind active so that's the older side the younger side uh, I like the energy in younger people uh, what I find them to be uh, obviously lacking uh, as opposed to the more seasoned person is uh, they haven't, you know, their, their foresight vision is not based on the rear view mirror. It's based strictly on the windshield and and that's problematic in a way because of the lack of experience and the the lack of uh, challenges that you've faced and overcome. However, um, that being said, if they get the right investor group and they get the right board uh, who can help them um, uh, from a fostering point of view and a mentoring point of view and they're willing to listen, I think young people have a huge opportunity uh, in what's playing out uh, in the uh, global environment, uh, certainly in sectors and technology. Things that uh, I would say more seasoned investors are not very uh, well versed in. Uh, myself being one, uh, younger people have uh, more of a uh, technology environment, and uh, um, and therefore they're they're better seasoned to deal with today's challenges and opportunities, as opposed to uh, People that aren't in that mainstream, and uh, so I, I don't, I believe younger people with the right product or service and the right mentality, the mentality of I believe in what I have, but I'm here to learn about what I don't know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I must meet on a monthly basis about. I'd say six to eight uh, companies who are interested in investing or seeking advice. And it when I can find somebody who is younger, um, who is focused and energetic, uh, who has has a broader idea of the market they're dealing with and how to build a company to get its value. I'm uh, generally much more interested in that than somebody who's very seasoned. Okay. Because I think I I can help them more than I can a seasoned guy, okay?
0: So you feel like you you could add more value to that and help get get it there versus somebody that says, I already know the game. I've been there, done that, right? You're like, well, then what, what value other than money do I bring to you?
1: And there's the self-serving uh, reason for that. Uh, money is money, mm-hmm. you know. And after a while, that's all it is. Um, but to in, to to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, it's something, I helped uh, with this uh, individual's progress, not success. Success is an ending word, but helped with their progress and that means more to me than uh, getting a big paycheck. I already have the big paycheck. (laughs) You already already got that. Yeah. So, you know, how do you, to use your term, how do you pay it forward? And it's a lot easier to do with younger people than it is with, uh, with more seasoned people.
2: amazing. (laughs) We're, we're kind of speechless over here. Uh, digesting your your insights that you're sharing here so one other question here you mentioned food garbage medicine and death are the four recession proof industries if you had to do it all over again because i think you've got uh, a successful track record in both uh, garbage or waste and medicine would you look at a different industry outside of those four or would you still stay involved in one of those four
1: Because they are the most the most uh, relevant to the human life cycle. It's like I said. My mentor told me. He said once a person's born, they have to eat. Mm-hmm. They will make trash whether they like it or not. They're going to get sick whether they like it or not, and they're going to die. And uh, the most closely related industries to that, out of necessity, are the food uh, garbage. Uh, medicine and that um, I, I think there is significant upside opportunity in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. It's been being taken advantage of for decades and uh, any technology that you can bring in uh, that is going to bring transparency, especially in the supply chain side, uh, which is a second largest spend in healthcare is absolutely needed Um, and uh, there are significant opportunities there and they're not going away. Uh, You know, it's about 19 to 20% of our GDP and it's growing. Mm -hmm. Um, So those things exist. And when economic times are tough, you're always making garbage. You're always making waste.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and um, so, and I, you know, people have come to me and said, well, do you care about the administration and what they're going to do? I said, I don't really care who's there. I mean, from a business point of view, Yeah. um, people are still going to get sick and they're going to go to their doctors. They're going to go to the hospital and, uh, they need products and services and those need to be paid for. And somebody's going to pay for them either, you know, the the private payer section, Medicare, Medicaid, the government or the individual, somebodys going to pay for them. And, uh, if we can make, uh, access to those, uh, more cost effective, it's going to cut down the costs in healthcare and, uh, it will be give accessibility to more people. Um, so I wouldn't change that at all. As a matter of fact, I would suggest, to anybody who's looking to get in business, if they have some type of healthcare um, background or knowledge, that there are significant opportunities there uh, in the waste business. It's more of how can you do it more effectively, more efficiently, and it's not getting rid of the waste. That's a logistics business. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, no, I wouldn't change it. I, I don't. The food industry, there's so many facets of it. I'm not educated there. Um, In the death business, you will see that there have been significant roll-ups by institutional uh, investment firms into the death business, the funeral business.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: They've been rolling these things up, and they're making a significant amount of money. You don't hear about it because people think it's kind of a morbid subject yeah
0: i was gonna say that
1: yeah but it's absolutely there and there's a lot of uh a lot of financial
0: upside there well i think the uh i think the 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 you answered we had a a follow-up question which you went ahead and answered if you believe that's still good those are still hold true today um which your logic behind that obviously is kind of foolproof like The way I I never, I've never heard somebody explain that like something so clearly. I think for like which industries you should go into, Um, and then the the death one, it's it is interesting how you mentioned it's a morbid topic, and you don't, you know. I met a guy three or four years ago that had a a software company called Kraken. I think he ended up exiting pretty big, and it was a it was a software company for funeral homes for and. It was like you didn't really hear much about this guy. It was it was it was again it was like a morbid topic, but I'm I'm pretty sure the guy I have to go double check, but I knew he exited and I think he exited pretty large um, for the software he built called Kraken. And I, you know, again, those aren't the I think it's it's those are not the pretty industries, but those are also the ones that are going to be around forever. Yeah,
1: they don't change, and and you hit it right on the head. They're not pretty. Okay. They're not fancy. They're, they're, they're not anything that, uh, you know, people go, wow, you know, you, you work in that industry. Um, you know, people say to me, well, how'd you do what you did? And I said, well, I was in garbage and healthcare. Now healthcare, they kind of get, they mm-hmm. look at me and say garbage. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I go, yeah, your trash is my cash. <laughs> and, uh, and they, they, they kind of laugh and, uh, uh But uh, these aren't – by the way, inside those four verticals, uh, gentlemen, the services component inside those four verticals are more recession-proof or more economically insulated than the capital parts of it. Example, real quick, in the garbage business. If, if the amount of waste goes down because the manufacturers are producing less, you don't need as many containers, okay? You're going to get a higher degree of marginal utilization out of that container. So you might depreciate it now seven years as opposed to five. But you still have to pick that stuff up,
3: mm-hmm.
1: okay? And that service of picking it up doesn't go away, And depending upon what type of waste you're dealing with, like in healthcare, the most regulated thing in all of healthcare is waste. okay? yep, and in medical waste in healthcare, it is extremely regulated. How much was generated per bed per day? When was it picked up inside the hospital? How long is it allowed to stay? in hospital, uh, a hospital holding area, then it has to be picked up in a certain amount of time from the time it was generated. It's only allowed to be transported for a certain amount of time. Then it has to be processed and destroyed in a certain period of time, and then put in the all place in the landfill. Uh, those things are time sensitive, and um, there are services that aren't going to go away. Yep. Um, so I think you get the idea. If, if you get in the services part of those four industries, uh, you're better off than in the capital part of those four industries.
2: Makes sense. That's it's a very uh, insightful take there as as well.
0: Um, is that, I wouldn't ask him, is that the, uh, I mean, when you're getting into that, I mean, you're clearly an expert Healthcare Waste Solutions was the company that you exited. Am I am I speaking correctly? Oh, one uh, one of well, the bigger I, ones. I, I, yeah,
1: I exited a whole bunch of them, but that one is the one we put in. We put in a total of twenty three million dollars and sold it for two hundred and forty seven million. Oh. Uh, five years later, not a bad RF. Five
0: years later,
1: yeah. Well, actually, six. Concept was one year, and then building it up, and then uh, selling it, uh, and then the S, uh, the Department of Justice approval took another nine months. So I guess in total, about six and a
0: half years. So I, I want to ask you a question on that because that time frame. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that like you hear. Okay, I started this company. I mean, seven, six, seven, eight years, whatever it was. I mean, that's that's a super short time frame to go from a twenty three million dollar investment to a quarter of a billion, right and so yes. one of the like I guess my question would be is how did you manage growing that quickly like i mean was it I know you've mentioned people and money, but it's it's almost like it sounds like you'd have to be running with a fire under your ass to be able to manage that kind of growth that quickly not really
1: um it, again, if you work backwards like I told you or mentioned to you earlier, Uh, I knew I wanted, where do you think the biggest amount of uh, medical waste is? It's where the most people are and where are the most people? New York, East Coast. I knew I wanted to go there, but I knew I couldn't start there. So I had to start in the Midwest to build out the processes, the technologies that we were building people in the Midwest are a little bit more lenient about early stage companies. So Mm -hmm. it it took about two years to build that up, proof it all out. Then I went to New York and I walked in and said, here's what the value is. I knew we could replicate it. I knew people in New York are impatient. I knew they didn't like paying their bills on time, knew all that stuff. So when we went there, um, Uh, we had, uh, three facilities before we went there and had spent quite a bit of money on building a technology, um, that managed things differently. And before I went to New York, I looked to, uh, buy a company, a medical waste company that was, uh, servicing in New York, but, uh, wasn't doing a very adequate job. Um, and so, uh. I knew part of the plan was to go to the biggest market. Um, I had to proof in a uh, medium market to get ready for the large market in New York, New England, New Jersey, and the mid-Atlantic. And uh, I also knew the service that I'd have to have an incinerator. There were only 11 medical waste incinerators at the time approved. And so you, you pre planned from out backwards and I knew who I'd have to go buy. And I, I, uh, I worked on two years of building that relationship and showed him the value. And instead of buying them, I, I let, uh, I merged in, in a factor with him that gave him a huge upside on, uh, on the uh, sale that he never would have gotten. And he understood it. And, uh, we went from uh, the availability of processing about uh, hundred tons a day of medical waste in a 24 month period to uh, 875 tons a day. And, uh, when you control, um, where the business is, I knew and we were taking business away from the two largest companies in the industry, and that was the plan. Uh, I knew they'd want to get rid of us and but I had to go through New York to do it
0: right you want you uh, wanted to position yourself like they're getting too big we got just we gotta we got absorb them because they're taking too much of our business
1: exactly and and the last statement I'll make there, which I don't talk about often is I also built relationships with some large, institutional investing firms in new york talking to them telling them who i was introducing myself but not asking for any money and they would say well you don't need any money and i said not right now but maybe in the future well a lot of those institutional houses uh Uh, They like to build relationships, and if you have a good thing going, then once you have it going, then they want to get involved because they're only commodities money. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And uh, so I did that, and I knew right before I went to sell it, I had built these relationships in almost five years. I went back to New York, sat down with these firms, and had dinner with them. I'd meet with them about every six months. Just to say, gee, here's what we're doing. I met with you six months ago, we added this healthcare system, added this, we added this, and they're going, man, do you need some money? And I'd say, no, I don't need any money, but, you know, maybe in the future I will. So finally, when I knew I wanted to sell the company, I went and sat down with these guys individually and said, you know, I'm ready to recapitalize my company. They said, you are? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, what are you thinking about and I said, I'm looking for two hundred million dollars. And they said, Okay. Now remember, for five years they've been hearing about my progressions. Right. You know what I mean? The company's progressions. And they always kept asking me, Do you want money? Do you want money? I'd say, No, no, no. Now all of a sudden I look at them and I go, I'm thinking about recapping my company. You know, paying back my initial investors, giving them some upside, growing the business. I need to recap. How much are you thinking about two hundred million? I never had any intention of recapping that company. But I knew as soon as I went to these these investment houses and told them that I was looking at a recap. Word would get out on the street to the two biggest players yeah. that Joe Merinick was looking to go out and get two hundred million and with twenty million he's kicking our ass. <laughs> Taking market share we can't let this guy have 200 million because we're going to lose more market share so what i did by using that 200 million dollar number uh fellas was i set the floor so because i knew these two companies would find out i was looking for 200 million and they then would know that if they wanted to buy the floor was going to be two hundred million. That is and
0: the, that's minim- that's the minimum that's the minimum you w- Yeah, they're like, okay, he's trying to go out and get two hundred million. We can't offer him any less than that.
1: Exactly. And then they bid against each other and then we settled in one deal and that was it. That's so slick. So you have to be you have to think, like I said, how do you want to exit? And I knew to exit. I'd have to, you know, I have to raise my own money, have to use my own money, have to build out a pilot in the Midwest and then move it towards New York, New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and then I'd have to simultaneously build relationships with investment people in New York.
0: Cuz you had to prime the you had the prime buyers basically, right? You had to make sure that the it would get back to them. So you were and people some people might call that manipulation i just call that good business it's you're building real relationships but in business there's right. all there's always a uh, there's always you know a mutual benefit to both so you're you're building good relationships and you're also saying hey i know that these relationships will help me get to where i want to go too right absolutely
1: and then after we sold the business one of those farms came well actually two of them came to me and said hey would you build a national medical waste business and and what would it take and i said well I, I know what it'll take but i can't do it i have a non-compete and they said well what would it take so i gave them an outline one of them came back and said well we'll fund you up to a billion dollars to do to follow your strategic plan to build another national medical waste company because there was only one that was traded publicly and their stock was trading at 140 dollars a share uh And the market, even today, still today, 12 years, 10 years later, is still looking to do, to bring to the market a nationally uh, traded medical waste company because there's only one today that exists. And uh, it's, you know, not a fancy industry, but it's a very profitable industry. And so you have to look at all the levers, is my point to you it's just not the product or the technology you fall in love with you have to take a look at that holistic picture what kind of impact does this product or technology make and um, how does the market exist today how can i in fact exact change in the market and then work from where i what i want to do with the company and what timeline and work backwards and there are several different moving parts and you know one is money and one is access to money utilization of relationships in the financial area the other one is operational expertise making sure that you can produce and provide what you say you can and how you're and how you're differentiating yourself and so you're pulling four or five different levers at one time and uh, you know, you asked earlier, and I think the reason that most companies don't succeed is not that they don't have a good product or technology or concept. They don't look at the whole overarching holistic approach of all the things you have to do besides having a great product or a technology. There are, there are a lot of moving parts in building a business successfully or progressively and selling and selling it, and that really comes from experience and getting your butt kicked a few times. But um,
0: um, it almost sounds like it's so an art. It almost sounds like it's an art form, Joe, to a degree. Well, I mean, kind of finding the balance. Between, yeah, finding the balance between because you know, as you hear as like entrepreneurs, especially younger ones, and if you follow like you know big media, right, TechCrunch, all these big and crunch base, and all these all the news that that's being shared that you're not, you're, hearing, you're not hearing all the other stories, you're just hearing what the media outlets want you to hear, which is this company started here and they moved quick, and they did this and this and I think as entrepreneurs and just business professionals in general we're, we're you know we're we're kind of pushed to move fast 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 fast, and you know it's yeah, move fast, but also like have some strategy like you might have a good product. But if you don't know what the market's going to yield, if you don't know who your car- targets are going to be, if you don't know if you want to exit or if you want to make it a lifestyle company, if you don't have these things in place, you could have the best product in the world. and It's never going to go anywhere.
1: Uh, you hit it right on the head, and, and it's very astute of you. There are a lot of great products and ideas, I mean great ones, that have never been implemented out there because the people that came up with the concepts and ideas didn't know how to bring it to market
3: Mm. and
1: therefore there are a lot of things that could be very helpful that uh, you know we don't utilize and that's why and I'm sure you guys know this a lot of the technologies and some of the uh, cutting-edge products uh, come from uh, governmental programs and when you think about that um, how is that possible well there they have in, in a lot of cases uh, unlimited funding unlimited funding and they can take as much time as they want for example uh, a company by the name of Corning that I consulted to years ago um, that people knew them for their you know their dish plates their dishware all right and uh, not so much today because of the way the market changed but where i'm going with this is they had dishware that was the top dishware flatware in the united states and probably in the world for a while and that product was not designed as dishware they were building the ceramic plates for the space shuttle And as a result of building those plates that
3: took up huge amounts of uh, heat, heat heat
1: resistance on the reentry into the earth Mm -hmm. for the space shuttle, uh, one of their product guys said, gee, we could could take this uh, same application and and make uh, dinnerware plates that you could put in the oven and they would never crack. And that's how corny flatware was invented.
3: <laughs> not, because were, not because they were looking to make, you know what I mean? Right. Dinnerware, high heat resistance. They had a product that they built for uh, the
1: ceramic uh, towels for the, for the uh, space shuttle. And somebody sat there and said, you know what? We could probably take that and make it into dinnerware. And we could say you can put it into your oven and heat it up to 600 and it won't crack. That's how that, that was created. And there are a lot of other things that we use today uh, as consumers that were created in governmental or for governmental programs. So anyway, I know our time's about up here, so uh, any other questions?
2: Yeah, real quick, just trying to get as much uh, juice out of you as we can. Um, kind of going to take this in a slightly different direction, but it's still related to We've seen plenty of stories of successful uh, businessmen and women that have amassed great fortunes. How do you prevent your children or future generations from, you know, that sense of entitlement? That is a
1: that's the best question you've asked today. You've asked good questions, but that's the best one. Um, I know we have about seven minutes. I'll probably take it all up. Um, uh, you can, well, it,
0: you can uh, run over if you want. We just, we're trying to be conscious of your time. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, that isn't, that is an absolutely penetrating question. Um, uh, years ago, you know, like when you're a young guy, it's coming out of school and you, you know, you kind of interact with each other and, uh, we all kind of go our separate ways. And a bunch of us uh, were very progressive in what we did. <clears throat> and uh, several of the guys ended up becoming CEOs of Fortune 50 companies, Fortune 100 companies, some of us in an entrepreneurial event. And uh, we would get together about once a year or maybe twice a year. Mm-hmm. And always the subject would come up of what you just brought up and would sit around and say, gee, you know, you know, you have to teach your kids the basic fundamentals of honesty, integrity, the basic value sets, those things you have to teach them. And they have until they're about 16 or 18. And then they go out in the world and see if they really work or not.
3: Mm
1: But, uh, you're talking about the economic point of view here and it's always been a challenge. For example, I, and this, this story resonates with most of my counterparts. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, we came from very humble beginnings. Uh, My mom and dad worked. uh, My dad didn't even have a high school education, um, eventually got his GED, but uh, uh, I started working when I was 11, I think. Wow. And uh, I played baseball, and I had to work for two years to get my first Mickey Mantle Rawlings ball baseball glove. Two years I worked for that. I bet you
2: that's team. worth something if, it, if you still have it. <laughs>
1: I still have it. Nice. Um, but uh, so when I got older and I was working and, you know, we had a son, I said to myself, you know what? I want to make sure he gets the best ball glove there is out there. So I bought it for him. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And by the time he was 17, 16, I'm sorry. He and I were playing in the father, son golf tournament at Pebble beach, walking down the 18th fairway, playing at Pebble beach. And I thought that was great. Mm Mm-hmm. Not so great. (laughs) Uh, And what we did, a bunch of us that came from humble beginnings, was we empowered our children with economic access that we didn't have, that we had to work for. And if I had to do it all over again, and, and we've been fortunate, our three children worked out fine, two of them worked in our businesses, but... I would have them working from the time they were 12 or 13 in some type of job to teach them the value of hard work, ethics, the economic impact, and I think if you do that at an early age, when you've amassed quite a few dollars, you have a higher degree of comfort. That they're not going to go out and buy Ferraris and blow the money. Mm-hmm. They're going to see what appreciate the value of that and they're going to be good stewards of what is left to them.
0: Oh, well, they're gonna they're gonna and, Yeah, that's that's huge. They're gonna use it wisely almost.
1: Correct. But if you're used to giving them things, which that was part of the challenge that my associates and I had. We thought we were doing the right thing for him. We weren't doing the right thing for them. Uh, it was more the right thing for us.
2: Good, good intentions, and, uh, but bad outcomes, essentially, right?
1: Yeah, correctly. Now, fortunately, my kids don't. They, they're all multimillionaires now, um, because of the way we set up their trust. But you wouldn't know they had five cents, and you don't see them spending money. Um, you know, they, they, they work up the basic uh, facts, but it's, it's something that anybody that's really progressive that's going to build a large, you know, family foundation has to be very sensitive to. And the, the, the earlier you are sensitive to it, the better off you are, because if not, you sh- I mean, in estate planning, you try to manage from the grave. And, uh, you know, that's not always helpful. And unfortunately, I see a lot of my, my contemporaries uh, who have passed away where the kids are fighting over money. Mm-hmm. They're fighting over the spoils of their father's or mother's hard work. And I think some of my buddies would be turning over in their grave if they knew that, the things that they had built are now being argued over and tearing their their children apart.
3: Mm. Um,
1: And uh, I see that. So, um, you know, I try to manage from from the grave, from the estate point of view, but um, you can only manage so much and um, you can put, you know, parameters and restrictions on it. But, um it is a problem it's uh and each individual has to handle that and they handle it differently sure but it is problematic because you can imagine when you're building businesses back to the element of time time's your most precious commodity you only have so much time so if you have a hundred hours in the week you're building businesses and you're taking 60 70 hours a week build those businesses or build your career that only leaves 10 to 30 hours for your family Mm -hmm. and so this work-life balance of you know how do you appropriate those things um it's something that I, and, and there's no manual on parenting either. <laughs>
2: I was
0: about to For say sure. there's no easy answer. To I, this no, either. I've got, I'm just listening here, Joe, because I've got, I've got an eight and a half year old, and, a, and now, a you know, my youngest is 10 months old. So I'm, my ears are perked up, you know, just listening to everything you're saying right now. I mean, this is, this is priceless yeah, knowledge. Mean, but it's your, you know, it's your work
1: balance of life. Um, and generally, when you're really going out there, you know, People, when you come out of school, generally, you have to work for money. That's your motivation. Mm -hmm. And you heard me say it on that other interview. You work for money. And then the people that are really pretty good, they want responsibility for the money. So uh, they want to seek responsibility. They ironically end up making some more money than the ones that are really good. They want authority for the responsibility they have. They end up getting authority for the responsibility. They end up making more money. Mm Mm-hmm. And even though money was the initial motivator, you now see it's not the motivator. And then you eventually seek a position of power, and power is where you make policy. And that's the most difficult position because now when you're making policy and you're walking the bedroom floors at two in the morning, you know, you have your executive teams giving you their input. I think we ought to do this, I think we ought to do this, I think we ought to do that. In a lot of cases, it's mostly self-ingratiating. So you have to see through that. And then when you make policy, you have to really, you're really going to do it the right way. You have to engage, and think, how does it affect the janitors in the company? Because the reality is, your executive vice presidents really don't run the company. No people that execute are the people on the ground floor. So when you change these policies, how does it affect them and their families? And uh, those, those things take a lot of time, effort to make that money and therefore your time allocation is more leveraged, not to your family, but to the businesses or your career, but in your mind, You justify that by saying, I'm doing this for the benefit of my family. When in reality, uh, you're, in in many cases, taking away from the basic fundamental values of the family. Because you aren't there spending time, you know, mentoring, teaching, and so forth. You're, You're building a business where you think, the economics will take care of the family. And what, what you learn in the rear view mirror is if you're really smart enough, you you really become sensitive to that that balance between family and business. And uh, most of us uh, have not done that well or did that well. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some of my associates sit there and say, well, they're far better off than they would have been if I haven't done that. I look at it and say, well, it's easy to say, but the reality is, is what's the measurement of the value of the children that we brought in and, and fostered and brought along? Mm-hmm. And we're going to go into the dust here soon. We're going to leave them with a bunch of money. What are they going to do with it? what What type of value are they going to move forward with it and uh and that's a question that continues to be asked all the time and uh um, that's deep. not an easy answer
0: that's deep no there's probably not one answer to it too it's It's a combination of things but you know like you said when yeah. when you're when you're gone you know the the economic the economic value you've left for your children and and grandchildren and so on and and family members, it's, it's going to be, you know, my opinion is that a big part of how that's going to be used is the value that you've provided them. That was not economic value. That was, you know, things you taught them, things you did with them, experiences you gave them that's going to help drive what they do with the money. And so I think that's the balancing act there as a, as a parent and, obviously when you when you have the kind of wealth that you've accumulated those questions you know for for me sitting here at 28 you know I'm I'm making a decent living but I don't have to answer those questions right now you know I'm just thinking about how what's the next big thing for me somebody like you it's those are bigger questions when you've got that kind of wealth you think about that a lot more like I don't want my you know I saw Tom and and i, I know, I'll, then we'll wrap this up I saw Tom Brady uh they did an article the other day and he's like I'm trying to teach my kids that like, hey, we do a lot of nice things and this is great, but this isn't like the real world. Like a lot of people don't get to do this stuff. And how do I teach my kids that there's value, there's a lot of value and intangibles to living the normal life and that not everybody gets this. And so it's just an interesting dynamic that I, you know, I don't struggle with personally this day in my life, but, you know, you obviously and, and your associates where you're at, in your stage, it's something you've, you've clearly got to think about a lot.
3: Okay. Well,
1: uh, it's been a very uh, interesting interaction. Uh, some of these subject matters I haven't talked about in quite a while. So um, it's, uh, uh, you know, my hat's off to you for asking some of these provocative questions other than, you know, pure economics, how do you build a business and so forth. Um You always have to, uh, infuse the, what I'll term to be the family side of people, because what do you really work for at the end of the day, what do you, what do you work for? Uh, you, you work to provide a better life for yourself, your family and, uh, and is there a real value that you're building there outside of a bank account? So. Uh, My hat's off to you for asking those questions. Thanks a lot for uh, the opportunity to chat with you guys,
3: and uh, all the best to you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you so much, Joe. really appreciate it. God bless.